Good evening to you all. How are you doing? I'm excited to be here. Uh, we've got uh, a lot to cover and a little time to get there, but I'm excited all the blanks are filled in so I don't feel pressure. So this is fun. So you're not getting frustrated if I start, you know, going down a rabbit trail because I love to chase rabbits. How many of you like chasing rabbits? Aren't they fun? You know, and then when you kill that sucker and then there's another one to chase, I mean, it's just wonderful. So um, my goal, hopefully, is to give you some things that I, I do uh, as I train. God has given me the blessing of working at a college and uh, being a professor there for the last 18 years and um, doing a lot of training with ACBC. I was privileged of becoming a supervisor. I'm trying not to say nank anymore. So my new way of learning ACBC is, you remember AFLAC? Now I say ACBAC. It's because it's ACBC. So I'm trying to learn it. So um, been working with them for a while and joined the supervisory position as far as working with you. The, I guess they call it not the NANC fellow, but the ACBC fellow. So when people finish their grading or their exams, then I get the privilege of walking them through training. So part of what I wanted to do today and tomorrow is to give you what I give my trainees because we have a policy. We don't go immediately into them doing their counseling. They have to spend at least four weeks of training with me before we actually get into their supervision. And so if they agree to that, I'm going to give you what I give them in four weeks. And so we'll walk through this together, and that's why we have all the things here. And part of this is just hopefully a way to help you to think about the counseling process. I want to try to give it to you this way. If you could write this word down, concepts of analysis. Concepts of analysis. And the reason why I want you to learn that word, what I've discovered when people start counseling is that they don't have concepts of analysis, a way to evaluate the things that come at them. And so they get bogged down with every little detail that every person tells them, okay? Uh, like a blues song. Y'all ever heard a good blues song? Don't be bashful if you have, okay? Now, I want you to help me because I want you to see what this sounds like, a good blues song, because this is what I hear in counseling and this is what you're going to hear. So what you need to do in the background is do this. Dun, 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 dun. Can y'all do that? Dun, 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 dun. Okay, good. Keep going. Pastor, I'm having a bad day. Things ain't going my way. I got in a fight last night. I ain't been feeling all right. My wife is thinking. And I keep on drinking. Okay, we stopped there. But you get the point, right? So if you've ever been in the counseling session, doesn't that happen? They just go on and on and on and on. And if you're first starting counseling, you are overwhelmed. You're thinking, I don't know what to do with all these details. I, 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 it, it's just too much. And so my goal for the next few days is to try to give you a package, a way to look at counseling and to look at an individual and say, okay, I'm no longer overwhelmed because I've got these universal principles that no matter what this person tells me, I can put these things into areas of category. So concepts of analysis is a way to evaluate people and circumstances, okay? And also what I want to try to give you is not only concepts of analysis, but I want to give you procedures, some practical things that you could always do. And so when you see something, <clears throat> you have a picture, 
so you can relax and say, okay, I'm not overwhelmed. You can spend five hours talking to me and I can summarize everything you tell me in the five hours in 10, 15 minutes. So I'm no longer freaking out with all the details. I have a place to hang my hat. Now, my cousin who was in the military and he was doing some secret stuff that he could never tell me. But he knows stuff and it makes me nervous what he knows and then he'll forget because he's retired and he'll say something and then take it back. I'm like, man, no, 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 no. What do you mean you knew about, you know? But he gave me this concept. He said, Nick, please remember this. Too much analysis leads to paralysis. Okay, say it with me. Too much analysis leads to paralysis. Sometimes you can overthink something and make it more complicated than it really is. Okay, my goal is to bring you back to simple so that you'll see it'll get deep all on its own. For instance, a simple reality, forgiveness, simple, but hard to live, isn't it? Simple reality, love, but hard to live, right? We must not confuse simple with simplistic. And too often what happens in counseling, we overthink stuff and we, we, we get, can I say this? Am I in comfort places? We get too spiritual, okay? Instead of being biblical and being practical and just saying, oh, that's just selfishness. Oh, that's just good old fashioned stubbornness. Oh, that's just rebellion. You've just cloaked it in little details, but... When I look at the scripture, all of these details just summarizes to this big picture. This is where you are. And so I want us to try to do that. And I'm hoping that we can take the word counseling and really put it in the place it needs to go. Because sometimes when you say, I want to do counseling, or someone says, I think I want to do counseling, they get real nervous. You ever seen people, oh, I, I, I can't, I can't counsel. Oh, oh I, can't, I can't counsel. Okay. My, my challenge tonight and for the next two days is hopefully to convince you that every Christian is a counselor, okay? Every Christian is a counselor. And hopefully, as we explore tonight, we can begin to see that and tomorrow and begin to say, now that I know this, I can get beyond if I can, because you can, and let's put together a practice of how you're going to do this. But watch this, not in a shallow way, because as a supervisor, one thing I cannot stand is shallow counseling, Let me tell you what shallow counseling is. Glorified Bible studies. Okay? That's shallow counseling. Where the person tells you their problem and you give them more stuff to study and more stuff to read. And then they tell you another problem, you give them more stuff to study, more stuff to read. As if they don't already understand. You're teaching them to be doers, not hearers. But eventually what happens with many people is they give them another verse another story, another insight, and that person is no different from the last four or five sessions because it's another glorified Bible study. It's more head knowledge. And how many of you recognize that you probably know a whole lot more than you're living? Would you agree or disagree with that statement? So a lot of times you don't need new information. You need skill on how to live the old information that you keep living or not living out. And so my goal is to challenge sometimes counselors to say, look, they understand the principle. They have an exposition of the text. What they lack is exposition of their hearts in correlation with the text. Okay? 
And if we're going to do good biblical counseling, we've got to move just beyond, not just exposition of the passage, but good exposition of a person's heart, show them how they connect together, and then show them the practice and procedure of the put off, put on. Does that make sense? If we don't do that, we're just giving people more stuff to learn and they go out of our place and stay in the same old sin, but they got new information. So how do we strategically move a person from walking in what's wrong to walking in what's right? And how do we do it from an effective process of dealing with them where they are, not where we want them to be? Okay. So we want to try to answer many of these questions over the next couple of days and work through a process that hopefully can give you a picture and a process to do this. But before we do that, we got to get back to some foundational things so I can try to present my case to you that every Christian is a counselor. So if you would look at your notes, and some of you may turn to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. We're not going to read those passages in detail, but I just want you there to kind of walk to make sure I'm not lying when I start talking about it, okay? You know, I want you to be good Bereans. Every time I look at a passage, I want you to look at it too to say, he didn't know what he's talking about, or maybe that's true what he's saying, okay? So first thing I want us to look at, letter A, God is doing what? Saving souls. Now, what is he saving souls from? The penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin. So when we talk about this reality of salvation, God is. Now, am I saving a soul, ladies and gentlemen? Are you saving a soul? So who's saving a soul? God is saving a soul from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and one day the presence of sin. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10 talks about we were dead in our trespasses and sins. But God, being rich in his grace and mercy, says, by grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not by works, lest any man should what? For we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works that he prepared beforehand that we should do what? So you have been saved from something, but the reality is you've been saved to something. And too often when people talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they only deal with the salvation from, not the salvation to. Not only have we been rescued, we've been redeemed. Is that not a true statement? So if I've been rescued, I've been redeemed, I've also been reconciled. So therefore, when we understand this salvation, we've got to talk about it holistically, which in our counseling process, if we don't, the rest of the counseling process is shallow because one, salvation is not just a rescuing from, it's a reconciling to for a specific purpose. So God saved us from something, but he saved us to something. Let's take a look at letter B. God is maturing saints into the what? From glory to glory, 2 Corinthians says, we're being transformed into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 29, all things work together for good for those who've been called, who loved him. And he says, those whom he foredestined, those he foreknew, he predestined to be transformed into the image of whom? So your predestination, predetermined purpose of election, that God chose you for what purpose? Through you, he wanted to bring glory to himself, and he wanted to transform you into the image of Jesus Christ. So when we think about everything as Christians that we go through, it's very simple. We don't know all the details as to why God lets terrible things happen or why good things happen, but here's what we know. God is using every opportunity to bring us to the very character of Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Character, 
conduct, conversations, commitments, compassion, all those areas where you reflect and look like Jesus Christ. Well, God is saving the soul. God is maturing the saints. So if we were to look at the salvation reality, I am saved from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and soon the presence of sin. I'm saved unto a new and right relationship with God so that three things. I may know him, John 17, 3. This is eternal life that you may what? Know so that I may know him. Secondly, that I may become like him. We're being transformed into the image of Christ. And three, be useful to him. I'm called to the ministry of reconciliation if I'm dealing with an unbeliever. I'm called to the ministry of builder if I'm dealing with a Christian. Ephesians 4 tells us what? That he gave us pastors, apostles, etc., etc., for the equipping of the saints for the Work of service. Well, what is that work of service? When you look at the context, it is building the character and faith of fellow believers so that we're not children. Now, what do children do? Can you tell me? They whine, right? They pout. They cry. Children are focused on whom? Themselves. The whole world revolves around whom? So the evidence that a person is really helping another Christian grow is they help them to stop being babies and self-serving and self-centered. We'll begin to discover in Christian counseling or biblical counseling, we're trying to help children, and I'm not talking kids as far as kids, but I'm talking about in mentality, we're trying to help Christians grow up. And there'll be evidence of what that looks like. So when we think about this salvation experience, I'm an ambassador. If I see an unbeliever building a relationship, God may use me perhaps to save him from the penalty of sin, the power of sin, and soon the presence of sin. If it's a believer, I'm a builder. I invest in this person's life for what purpose? Through our relationship. If God wills, they grow up. But what are the two things that God is doing again? Can y'all tell me? Saving souls and keep up, keep up, keep up. What are the two things he's doing again? See, I'm going to treat you like I treat my students in, at, at the college, all right? Keeps you awake too, doesn't it, all right? Saving souls and maturing saints. Now, are you saving a soul? Are you maturing a saint? So let's go a step further. Letter C. God is using the church through evangelism to do what? Huh. So through evangelism... When you and I are serious about our ministry of reconciliation, when we're serious about being ambassadors, God will use us as we build relationship with unbelievers, they get saved. Now, we don't determine that. We're just faithful in the presentation. God determines the outcome. We saw that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, one plants, one waters, but God gives the increase. So the one who plants and the one who waters is nothing but God who giveth the increase, but each one will receive his own labor according to his, or reward according to his labor. So when I am a good ambassador, if God wills, someone will get saved. God is using the church letter D through discipleship to mature saints into the image of Christ. Well, this is interesting. If you think about this practically, God is saving a soul God is maturing the saint, right? So, I'm not saving the soul. I'm not maturing the saint. So, it's not my responsibility to save them or to mature them. My responsibility is to evangelize and to do what? 
Oh, I just thought I'd tell you guys, they're not looking for a junior Holy Spirit. Did anybody know that? (laughs) So there's no openings in the Trinity. So guess what? We can't play Holy Spirit in the lives of people. They want to stay the Trinity. So I'm sorry, but I thought I'd tell some of you because some of you are trying to play the Holy Spirit. And you can't make people see. You can present reality. It is God that has to bring them to their senses. So, by the way, let me say it again. Who's saving souls and who's maturing saints? Oh, okay. And what ministry do we have as a church? What to? Huh. Okay. All right. Now, as long as we're in this dispensation, yes, I'm dispensationalist. Hopefully I don't scare too many people off with that. Um, How long do we need to do evangelism and discipleship? Huh. Okay. So I have a question for you. If I'm in a counseling room and the person is an unbeliever, what is my ministry in that counseling room? Evangelism, huh? So they can tell me all about how bad their life is going, how terrible things are and all and woe and all of this. And we're going to love on them through the process. But ultimately, what is the ministry we have? What is our objective ultimately at that point with that person? Evangelism. Because if we try to help them walk in truth as unbelievers, we're creating little self-righteous Pharisees that will burn in hell. When what they need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, let me flip the script. If I'm in the counseling room and I discover that I'm dealing with Christians, what's my ministry? Huh. So, in counseling, what am I doing? What two things? Huh. So, is every Christian a counselor or am I just making that up? Matthew 28 told us to do what again? Go in. So why do we keep trying to make counseling something uh, mystical and just, oh, I can't do that. Really? Can you do evangelism? Can you do discipleship? Are you commanded to do evangelism? Are you commanded to do discipleship? So then every Christian, if we're talking about biblical counseling, is a counselor. I want you to look at that with me. Look at letter E. Biblical counseling is the avenue whereby evangelism and discipleship can take place, resulting in God using it to save a soul from the power, penalty, soon presence of sin, and maturing saints into the image of Jesus Christ. Therefore, every Christian should be a what? Every time you sit with someone, you're either an ambassador or a builder. Every relationship in your life, you're either an ambassador or a builder. If you are a uncle and you have a niece that is not a believer, you become an uncle that is an ambassador. If you are an uncle and you have a nephew that is a believer, you become an uncle that is a builder. Every relationship you have and every relationship you will begin has at its backdrop the reality of the redemptive call that God has put on our lives. So therefore, in the counseling room, there is no distinction as you're dealing with the issues. And we're going to talk about how to deal with issues in people's lives and systems. But at the core, at the very central theme, you are either doing ambassador work or you're doing a builder work. 
And if you can't distinguish between the two, it may frustrate you because you may find that you're dealing with an unbeliever that thought they were a believer. Here's what I find when you get a disobedient person in counseling. Two things. Please write this down. Two things you'll discover with a disobedient person in counseling. Spiritual deception or spiritual amnesia. Spiritual deception or spiritual amnesia. Let me explain the difference between those two. Spiritual deception is what we see in the concept of Matthew 7 when Jesus says, many of them will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not do this and did we not do this in your name? And Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you, you who practice iniquity. A spiritually deceived person is someone who believes that they're a Christian, but ultimately they're not a Christian. They've put faith in their works. They put faith in some process or some prayer, but they do not know and have not put faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. They have what you would call that demon belief. Oh, I understand that Jesus exists and he's real, but they have no confidence in who he is and what he has done. But they can intellectually talk to you about it. These are people who are spiritually deceived. And so it shows up in the counseling room because they're not following through on anything you tell them to do because they're really not saved. Or you have the spiritual amnesia. Now, these are those Christians who are saved, but they're just good old-fashioned stubborn. Okay? And God is using you, according to Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, to restore such a one that's caught in sin. And they have spiritual amnesia, according to 2 Peter chapter 1, which is they have forgotten the purification from their former sins. They have forgotten that God didn't save them to sin more. He saved them that they may walk more and more with him. They forgot that they were delivered from sin, that they may know him, become like him, and be useful to him. Oh, they forgot that. So they've allowed the world to dim them to the light of truth. And you in the counseling room get the opportunity to help them. So when we start looking at this biblical counseling process, we've got to go back to the original picture. God is saving souls. God is maturing saints. God is using the church through evangelism and discipleship. So when you get into a counseling room, if it's an unbeliever, you're doing evangelism. If it's a believer, you're doing discipleship. So therefore, every Christian is a counselor. Now, before I go any further, I'm going to do something a little different. I'd like you to take just about two minutes, turn to the person next to you, ask and answer this question. Can I buy into what he's just saying? Yes or no, and why? Take about two or three minutes. Can I buy into what he's saying? Yes or no, and why? Then we'll come back and we'll build on that a little bit more.
right, time is up. I'd like you to look with me at letter F, and then we will see how far we get on this session. Now, again, who's saving souls? Who's maturing saints? And how is he using the church? What two means? When you're in the counseling arena, what two things are you doing? So then every Christian is a true or false? All right. What we need to help our people understand in the church is that counseling is not this thing for the special people. Okay. The high and exalted. Counseling is for all of us. Now, I want you to notice in this section, letter F, there are three objectives in biblical counseling that will always be the objectives of biblical counseling. So when people say, well, I'm not sure what I'm supposed to be thinking about. I'm not sure what I'm supposed to process. Every time you sit down to counsel, these are your objectives. Let's take a look at them together. Letter F, all biblical counseling should be built around three key objectives. Number one is to lead a person into salvation. Very simple. If you're dealing with an unbeliever, they need the gospel of Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter how much insight you have on other matters and issues. They can't operate without the power of God. They are dead in their trespasses and sins. They are slaves to sin. They need to be delivered. They need to be made alive from the inside out, that they have a new power, new position, new condition, so that they may operate in a manner worthy of God. They can't do that as slaves of sin. So therefore, that is always your objective when you're dealing with an unbeliever. But if we have believers, secondly, it is to lead Christians into putting off particular sinful habits that keep them from walking in love towards God and others. Now, for you and I, as we look at this specific objective, we've got to be caring, but we've got to be clear with people. One of the things I tell folk at our church when they first get there is this. We don't condone sin. We don't condemn sin. But we will confront sin with compassion and care. Does that make sense? We don't condone it. We don't condemn it. But we will confront it with compassion and care. You as a biblical counselor, you have to think that way. I'm not condoning this. I'm not condemning it. But I will confront it. I am called to confront sin, but I must have compassion and care. Galatians 6.1, if any man is caught in sin, you who are knowledgeable. Is that what it says? You who have skill in biblical counseling. Is that what it says? You who are spiritual. Well, what did he mean when Paul wrote, you who are spiritual, go and restore? The spiritual is tying back to Galatians chapter 5, where he starts to talk about those who walk by the Spirit. There's evidence. You remember the evidence of walking by the Spirit? Can somebody tell me what some of those particular characteristics are? Ah, love. What else? And, 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 Okay, so now think about it. He's saying to the congregation, if any man is caught in sin, you who are spiritual, you go and restore them. Not you who are knowledgeable. Because see, knowledge can make you arrogant sometimes to where you forget to be compassionate. And you focus on who's right versus what's right. But when you're walking in humility... It's not a matter of who's right, it's a matter of what's right. And your objective is, how can I love this person through confrontation? How can I help them to see that I'm not here to put them down, but I have to call it out? And I'm not just calling it out without solutions. 
Please remember this. Any fool can tell you what's wrong with you. Okay? Any fool can tell you what's wrong. It takes a loving person to show you what's wrong and have specifics to teach you how to walk in what's right. Biblical counseling is not just about fault finding. It's about we've got to start with the clear sin to move you into specific obedience. So therefore, I have to call it out and find it, not to pick on you, but to bring out what's wrong and by the power of God to help you walk in what's right. But you have to be walking by the fruit of the Spirit to have that mentality. Now, think about this, guys. As we look at this context of putting off and dealing with people in confrontation. If I have an anger problem and you confront me, what do you think I'm going to show you? So if I'm walking by the Spirit, you think I can handle when you show me that? You see where I'm going? Now, if I have a deception problem and you confront me, what am I going to probably show you? Deception. I'm going to try to lie and be sneaky about the whole nine yards. What I tell people is, why do you think that you're so special because you went and confronted them about their sin? If you don't really get a handle on it, the fact that you're confronting them, they're going to bite you with the very thing that you're talking to them about. So that's why you've got to go prepared because what tends to happen is we walk in there willy-nilly confronting and then they push our buttons and we act up. And they go, ah, look at you. You can't talk to me. Look at you. You see where I'm going? I don't know how many times people have said to me, who do you think you are? And you've got issues too. I said, oh, yeah, I got a lot of them. I got more than you know. But today we're talking about you. You know, or they try to get critical. You can't say anything. You did this. No, 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 no. I did more than that. You've missed a few things. Okay. So my stuff is ugly, but we're not here to talk about how ugly my stuff is. I love you enough to come talk to you. So we're not going to jump on that game of who shot gun and how bad I am or all of that stuff. I'm loving on you and I'm here for you right now. And I don't care about you being mad, faithful of the wounds of a friend. I'm going to be your friend no matter what. And a good friend will tell you the truth, not to hurt you, but to help you. So part of this process, objective-wise for you and I, is that if it's a believer, we've got to call them to a place to deal with their sin. That's the put-off process. Look with me at the third objective. Number three, to lead Christians into putting on loving attitudes and actions towards God and others, leading them to become like Christ in all things. Now, please write this down somewhere. Jay Adams, and I can't remember what book it was in, but he said a very profound thing and I never forgot it. And I want you to think about this. If you sin specifically, you should obey specifically. If you sin specifically, you should obey specifically. Now, what does that mean for you and I? If we're going to be effective in the process of counseling, we're not only going to identify the specific sin that we see in the lives of individuals, but we've got to identify the specific right thing they are to practice in order to overcome the specific sin that they're walking in. If we're not moving in that direction, then we're not helping our counselees get down the road. So for instance, If we have a counselee that is consumed with grumbling and complaining, what is the specific right thing that we need to help them walk in? What say you? Praise and 
So for every one thing they grumble about, we need to give them two or three things to be praising God and being thankful for. So that's a specific sin. We move them into specific obedience. You and I must become masters at looking at the opposites. Does that make sense? So for every sin that we see, we must research scripture, look at popular men and women who've wrote some very wonderful things to help us and think, now here's a specific way that this person can begin to obey that overcomes this specific sin. Now, what we'll discover is there is a process between the wrong and the right that we have to lead them through because many people, just because you tell them the truth doesn't mean that they're going to act on it. You know, oh, thank you, wonderful counselor. Now that you've showed me what to do, I'm ready to go do it. I mean, you know, I have not yet seen that person. I want that person. But there is a process between helping someone see the truth and actually walking in that truth. Part of that process is out of your hands. Part of that process is where the Holy Spirit has to work in the hearts and minds of those individuals. The other part of the process is where he will facilitate using you as an instrument in his hands to help with the rest of the process. I hope between tonight and tomorrow, you will distinguish between where you fit in and where you have to sit back. Once you discover that, if people want to stay in a certain position, you have no power to change it. Here's what I've discovered. When people are quick to try to fix other people and they're moving quicker than God, something's wrong. Let me me see if I can put it to you a different way. When I talk to counselors and they're frustrated because their counselees aren't moving fast enough through a process, I ask them a very simple question. Who determines their coming to their senses and changing? They go, yeah, 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 I know God does. I said, but here's my problem with the way you just responded to me. You think you're smarter than God at this point. So if God isn't moving to change them at this moment, and you are, what's your agenda? You'll discover when people get ahead and they get impatient, there's two things probably happening. One, it could be this. My competency has now been reduced to the outcome of this counseling. And so I only feel competent if this counselee is changed. And if the counsel didn't change, and that's a reflection of my counseling skills. So we've got to fix this because I don't want to look like an incompetent counselor. Here's the other situation it could be. I stand to gain or lose something if you don't change. There's something I want from you and I'm not getting it. And we need to hurry this along because when you change and I can finally get blank from you. But until you change, I can't get blank. And this is frustrating me because I can't get what I want from you until you change. And you'll discover when people try to move too quickly, it's a personal agenda, not a biblical one. And you have to ask yourself the question, when I'm impatient with people as I'm counseling them, what's going on in my heart? And I've been there. And as the Lord has spanked me a few times, now I kind of rest when I'm trying to help folk and, you know, they... Want to play the who shot John? You don't understand. You don't know. You don't, you're not listening to me. I hear everything you're saying. And I care about you. Here's what God says. I don't you know what? Why don't we just pray right now? When you're ready, we'll come back. You know what I'm thinking in my mind? I'm going to go home, chase my wife around, and go to bed. Okay? <laughs> Watch a little cable. You know, because at this point, you don't want to change. Now, I'm not saying that to them, okay? 
and I'm being as loving and patient and kind. But at the end of the day, I can't force a person to see the light and want to change. But there's some things I can do. And we're going to talk about what you do in those scenarios. But the key is we've got to know our place and be comfortable in our place. Now, notice these three key objectives again. Three key objectives. I am called, if it's an unbeliever, to work on evangelism. Okay? If it's a believer, I need to help them put something off and to put something on. All right, before we go any further, take about two or three minutes, do a quick review, go back to letter A and come all the way down to letter F. Talk about what you see with one another and we'll come back and we're going to build on this a little bit more. Then we'll probably take a break. All right, take a couple of minutes to do a quick review. Okay, everybody, I'd like you to look at letter G, and um, what I want us to try to do as we think about this whole process again, if, if we stay biblical with our counseling, we never leave the Great Commission. If we stay biblical with our counseling, we will discover that we have the same objectives all the time, salvation objectives or sanctification objectives. Salvation, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm sharing the gospel to help them come to Christ. Sanctification objectives is something they need to put off, something they need to put on. Now, what I'd like to share with you uh, in the closing part of this session is that there are five categories, five categories that as you start to work with people, you will discover that this is where the sanctification process will always exist. And as we look at these five categories, I'd like you to put the letter C in front of each one of the numbers, okay? And C just stands for category. 
So you're just saying C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, okay? And let me just read the context, and we want to walk through these together. Liturgy, there are basic categories of life whereby biblical counselors are to lead counselees through the process of putting off particular sinful habits and putting on God-honoring righteous habits. So when we start to break this whole process down, we'll discover that every issue in life basically falls down to these five categories. And once you master these five categories, when people are talking to you, you'll say, oh, that's a C1 issue. Oh, that's a C2 issue. Oh, that's a C3. Oh, that's a C1 and C3 issue. And before you know it, people are just going on and on and on, and you're categorizing the things that they're telling you. And part of the assignments that I give my trainees is that this, is that they have to go for a whole week and just listen to people. Don't try to counsel. Just listen. And as people are talking, categorize what they're telling you. You know, were they telling you C1 thing, C2 thing, C3 thing, C4 things? Because people are always telling you what's going on in their lives. You just have to learn the process of how to categorize it and evaluate it. Does that make sense? So let's take a look at some of these areas and let's talk about how they coincide and work together on a practical level. Number one, Biblical counselors are to help counselees look closely at and work hard on having a thought, attitudes, motives, intentions, and desires that are pleasing to God as God's word commands. Now, let's explore that for a moment. Now, I want you to notice, and some of you may see it, some of you may not have caught it. There's a distinction there. I put thought and then attitudes. And most of the times, those things are synonymous, okay? But I want to kind of go technical with you, and then you can go generic anytime you like. But I want to get technical. A thought is more of an idea that's in the head. An attitude is a system of ideas that become a belief system. Okay? Sometimes you have a thought that just comes and goes. But the problems that people tend to have are attitudes. They have this continuing ideas that are systematic enough that they become a belief system, an attitude of the heart that has to be addressed. So, for instance, you may be going down the street and you see something and you think something is gone. It's forgotten. You'll never see it again, never think about it again. It was a thought. But when you're talking to your spouse, there's an attitude that you have about your spouse. There's a belief system that keeps creeping up. And every time they say something, the word stupid comes to your mind. Okay, so you can't hear them for what they're saying because of the attitude in your heart towards them. So it's not a communication problem. It's an interpretation problem because of an attitude problem. Am I making sense to you? So I tell people, you don't have communication problems. You have interpretation problems and attitude problems. Okay, there's stupid written on her forehead or there's dummy written on his forehead. So it doesn't matter what he says or what she says. How do you interpret it as? And they could be telling the truth and right on the money, but your attitude about them keeps you in bondage and the marriage can't grow or the relationship or whatever it is. So again, it becomes a C1 issue, but there's a distinction between thought and attitude. Now that's being technical. Let's get generic. They're synonymous when you want them to be. Okay. But you may get that one smart allocate counseling. Well, the word thought and attitude are not the same. You know, you may get that one. Okay, And you'll be able to challenge them and say, yes, you're correct. Thought is an idea. Attitude is a belief system. However, today we're just going to use them synonymously. 
Okay? Because sometimes you'll discover, like the woman at the well, she didn't get intelligent until Jesus told her about her sin. You notice that? Go get your husband. You know, well, it's not my husband. Yeah, and the others were not your husband. Well, let's talk about worship in Jerusalem. You remember that? What did that theological dis- Oh, that came right after I dealt with your sin. Now you want to get theological on me. Oh, okay. And Jesus went theological with her and did what? Brought it right back to her sin. Right? So just want you to think about it because sometimes people will play those games with you because some people will hide behind theological insights instead of learn them to be transformed by them. And you have to discern when they're hiding behind theology versus trying to apply it for transformation. Does that make sense? So, again, let's look at another word. Motives or intentions. Those are same. Those are the same. They're just different words that mean the same thing. So I use both of them there so you can think about it. Motives, again, your agenda. Intentions, agenda. So motives, intentions mean agenda. Okay, you with me so far? Desires, what I treasure, what I want, what I want badly. So when you think about the C1 category, category one, we are called to help our counselees change in thought attitudes, motives, intentions, and desires. Okay? That's category one. Let's look at category two. Put a C by two. Biblical counselors are to help counselors look closely at and work hard on communicating in ways that are honest and edifying to others as God's word commands. So that's a C2 issue. We're to help people learn how to talk in a manner that brings glory to God. What does Ephesians 4.29 tell us? Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such is good for according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear. See, the challenge for us is not only are we to help people deal with thoughts, thought, attitudes, motives, desires, but also how they are talking to other people. How they say things, learning what is honest and decent and appropriate, what is inappropriate, sinful. We got to help them grow in that. Here's the third category. Put C by category three. Biblical counselors are to help counselees look closely at and work hard on walking in behavior that is consistent with Christ's character as God's word commands. Well, think about behavior. That's manner of life, how you eat how you sleep, how you carry yourself, how you dress, you know, what you watch on television, what you don't watch on television, how you manage your money, all the things in life that are pertaining to you apart from a relationship with someone else. Does that make sense? The things about you, you know, how you take a bath, how you don't take a bath, you know, how you handle your car, don't handle your car, you know, if you're messy or clean, you know, just all the things that are pertaining to your behavior and manner of life, how you carry yourself. That's what we would call a C3 issue. And have we been called to deal with our character, put off anger, you know, put on these things, be tenderhearted or things of that nature? We're called to deal with our manner of life. We're called to deal with, let me see if I can put it to you this way, character, conduct. Does that make sense? Conversations, commitments. Those are areas that you and I are called to reflect the very character of Christ. And so, it's what we call a C3 area. Places where I need to stop walking in sin and start walking in that which honors God. Let's look at 
Four, put a C in front of four, category four. Biblical counselors are to help counselors look closely at and work hard on relating to others in ways that demonstrate the love of Christ as God's word commands. So, C4 issue, how I'm relating to other people. Am I using people as a means to an end? Now, what's interesting, I can either be looking to love or that old Mickey Gillis song, I could be looking what? Looking for love and all. Okay, I'm sorry, I digress. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about, all right? So, again, I can be looking to love or looking for love. What do you think God wants me to be doing? Not looking for love, but looking to love. We need to help people in the area of relationships. As a mother, as a father, as a sister, as a brother, as an uncle, as a co-worker, employee, employer, uh, church member, you name it. Whatever role, what is God's responsibility for you in that role? And are you walking in a manner that brings the greatest glory to God and the biggest benefit to others? And if not, why and what motivates you? And what are you doing in that role? Would God be pleased when I do premarital counseling and I have wonderful young couples in front of me, you know, and I'll ask them why you want to get married. And, you know, sometimes they'll play the church thing. And I say, I want the right, I want the real answer. I don't want the right answer. You know, because in church, what's always the answer? Jesus, right? Okay. That's always the answer. And that's cool if that's really what you mean for a lot of people. They're playing games and not being real. And so they don't get help. And so what I challenge them on is, hey, let's talk about why do you want to marry this person? So then I'll ask a question like this. Since you've been around this person, have you become more like Satan or more like the son of God? And let's give me specifics and let's talk about it. Because, see, the people you hang around, the Bible says bad company does what? So if this person is truly of Christ, what should be happening as you're around them? You should be looking like, talking like, becoming more like whom? Oh, so that has to do with your relationships. And so we have to help people grow in those areas. Category five or C5, biblical counselors are to help counselors look closely at and work hard on serving others in ways that will bear burdens and meet needs as God's word commands. Think about that. Bear burdens and meet needs. Some of you may be thinking, well, what's the difference between bearing a burden and meeting a need? That's a good question. Bearing a burden is kind of like someone has a responsibility to do, okay? And there are extra things piled in their life that's hindering them from taking care of their responsibilities. So what do you do? You take the extra stuff off of their shoulders so that they can be responsible for the things they're responsible for. Does that make sense? So let's say a uh, single parent mother is dealing with her child and all of a sudden she has a car wreck. And so right now she can't get to her child because she has to deal with this car wreck because the policeman is saying to her, we need to work this out. But all the time she's trying to figure out how to get to her child. Well, now that is something above and beyond her load that she's having to carry. So what do you do? You say, I tell you what, I'm going to go get your son and he'll be with me at my house or something. You follow where I'm going? That's bearing a burden, helping a person to deal with something when there are other things that are keeping them from handling their responsibilities. 
meeting a need is kind of in the same vein, but it's the idea of someone's hungry, someone's thirsty. Uh, there's a tangible thing that you can do, and you have the ability, you have the resource. You provide it if it does not lead the person to sin. For instance, we have in Houston the dog races, okay? It's close to Galveston, and they have a little dog race down there. And I had family members who would take their light money, light bill money, and they would go gamble on the dog races. And then guess what I would have call when they lose when their light's out? Okay. That's not meeting a need. They're going to have a candlelight dinner. Okay. <laughs> you follow me? Because I'm not going to help your habit of sin. You were irresponsible and now you want me to pay for your responsibility. That's not the case. Meeting a need is, oh, I was going to pay the light bill, but then something has come up that was above and beyond my control in my finances, and so I need a little help. Okay, well then that's bearable. I have the resource to provide for you. You see where I'm going, guys? So bearing a burden and meeting a need, we have to help people learn how to walk in these areas. Now, we take these things, okay? And I want you to look at these five categories, and I want you to think C1, C2, C3, C4, C5, okay? And I'm going to start talking to you about an issue that I have. And I want to see how well, as I'm talking to you, how well you categorize the issue. Can you do that with me? Okay. I come to you and I say, I'm really having problems with my wife. What is that? C4. I didn't say what I said to her. I just said I'm having problems with my wife. Is that a relationship issue? So that would be a C what? Now, if I'd have said, you know, I said some things last night that I should not have said. What is that? There you go. If I start saying, sometimes I feel like this and I think this and I'm feeling this and I'm thinking that, where's that? Now, notice some of you may have paid attention that I don't have emotions or feelings under C1. Anyone catch that? There's a reason why emotions and feelings are not there. Because you don't control them by fixing them. You control emotions by changing your thoughts. So therefore, emotions will change because emotions are a reflection of what you're thinking. That's the reason why you don't have emotions or feelings there. And nowhere in the Bible am I called to take my emotions captive. What am I called to take captive? Because my emotions are the window to show you what I'm thinking. So if I want to change my emotions, what do I need to change? This is why this unbiblical idea that women are emotional. That is a unbiblical, that's social psychobabble. Women are not emotional. Women just verbalize their emotions more than men. Men are just as quote unquote emotional. They have the same emotions. They just don't say what women say. Everybody follow where I'm going here? So the emotions are still there. Men are freaking out. They just don't say it. Inside, they're, ah! Right? But here's what they do. Fine. <laughs> where women are going, ah, I'm going to tell you what I'm feeling right now, okay? Same emotions coming from the same place. The thoughts. Does everybody catch where I'm going here? So there's a reason why emotions and feelings weren't there. And I was wondering if somebody catch me a break and go, um, I want to help you here. Um, you didn't put emotion. No, I'm just kidding. You wouldn't do that. But now, okay, let me give you another example. 
you know, I know I need to go on a diet, and um, I haven't done it. I know I need to eat better. Where does that fit? Very good. Now, you guys see what I'm doing with you. When everybody comes to you with a situation, you will discover it will fit in those categories. It will fit in those categories. And as people are talking, you'll start to say, okay, they came with a C2, C3, C4. Now, here's a question for you, or here's a challenge to you. Look at the Old Testament. Look at the New Testament. And every time there was a call to change, every time there was a challenge to change, you will discover that the call to change always fit one of these five categories. So you know what that means for you and I? We already know where we need to change. It's going to always be from C1 to C5. Now, think about this as a counselor. You already know where the problem exists. You don't exactly know where it is yet, but you know it can only be in one of five places. You you see where I'm going here? Because every time there's a need for change, it will only be from C1 to C5. Now, let me get a little bit more specific. C1 to C5. The problem is always C1. C1 is the root. C2 to C5 is the fruit. If I have a communication problem, what do I have up front? Thoughts, motives, and what? Desires are determining my conversation. You go, "Uh uh-uh, not so. Chapter and verse. Chapter... Luke chapter 6, in the abundance of the heart, the... See, I'm not making this stuff up now, am I? Okay? Your behavior, where does it come from? Is it just random or where does it come from? Thoughts, motives, and what? Desires. How you handle someone, where does that come from? Thoughts, motives, desires. How you serve or don't serve, where does that come from? So what's interesting with this C1 to C5, if it's a C3 issue, it's also a what? If it's a C2 issue, it's also a? If it's a C4 issue, it's always a? If it's a C5 issue, it's always a? So it doesn't matter what they bring to you, the root is always causing the fruit. Now, if you get this in your mind, you're sitting with this person and they're telling you all this stuff and you're going C1, C2, C3, C4, C5. Okay, but it's a C1 that's causing all of this. So how am I going to work?